And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. That we can, and so help us God, we will make America great again. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the No Gimmicks Podcast. I'm your humble host, as always, Brady Leonard. Hopefully, you guys are having a terrific week. Uh, great show for you today. I was joined by my friend Farron Morgan. Always a great time talking to Farron. And we had a lot to discuss, as always. Um, we talked about uh, an absolutely horrible eminent domain case happening right next to the Alamo in, in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, we talked about the COVID tyrants um, attempting to rewrite history before our very eyes. Um, and we talked about how a, a bunch of these uh, digital news networks on the left that people thought would be around forever are, are apparently dropping like flies uh, with the vice uh, filing for bankruptcy. Um, a, a lot to discuss, but I think you guys will enjoy it. Before I get to Farron, guys, if you haven't already, please follow us on Twitter at NoGimmicksPod. Please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Make sure to subscribe. If you are an Apple user, please take a few seconds to leave us a five-star rating and a good review. I'd really appreciate that. And if you like the show and want to get involved, you can support us monthly over on Patreon, patreon.com slash the Podcast. All right, without further ado, the great Farron Morgan. <laughs> All right, guys, we're here with Farron Morgan. Farron, how you been? Hey, I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. So we have a ton to get to, as always. Um, but before we get to like the typical news of the day type stuff, um, you wrote a piece about a Texas man trying to save his bar. Um, the government wants to get him out of there using eminent domain. And ironically, this bar is right next to the Alamo. So <laughs> there's a lot yeah. going on there, but I, it's a really interesting story that I think people need to hear about. So uh, tell us what's going on. Yeah, it's sort of it's sort of stranger than fiction in the sense that, um, you know, the government's position and and it's really it's it's the city of San Antonio, um, but it's also the state of Texas. The government's position is that the the Alamo is so sacred and, you know, the stand for for liberty that was taken at the Alamo is so significant that it justifies this taking of private property, which, you know, to me, is <laughs> is a, a little bit circular. Um, but I had the, I had the opportunity to go out there and, and hang out with Vince Cantu, who's the owner of the bar and his wife, Chooch. Um, and they tell me that, you know, this eminent domain taking has been hanging over them for the past six years. So oh, wow. before COVID during COVID, you know, they, they had to take out loans to sort of weather COVID. Um, they've seen a significant decrease in, uh, you know, in traffic in their bar because uh, this eminent domain stuff has been all in the news. They were sort of like an everyday operation, offering food, et cetera. They've paired back just to weekend, um, you know, Friday and Saturday night uh, hours. Um, and and it's been, you know, to me, it was fascinating in the sense that, like, this is, this is a taking for economic development. So this is a sort of realization um, of the, uh, the Supreme Court's ruling in Kelo, um, which was that, you know, uh, <laughs> public use, that, that economic development can be, can be qualified as public use. Um, so it's not for, you know, a, a, like public utility, quote unquote, a, a road or, 
um, you know, a hospital or anything like that. It's it's purely a taking for for economic purposes. I mean, that um, that that would justify eminent domain in almost any situation. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, you know, it's scary because it is a slippery slope. It's sort of whatever the government decides that, you know, economic development is, um, is economic development unless, you know, unless there's an appetite to sort of challenge that, that case and challenge that ruling. Um, you know, in this case, what the, what the Alamo Trust and the General Land Office in Texas and, you know, they've sort of weaponized the, the city of San Antonio to do their bidding. What they want to do is build this sort of um, massive museum uh, that will be, you know, part of the, uh, the Alamo, what Texas Monthly calls the Alamo's new battle plan. It's kind of this like quote unquote restoration uh, of the Alamo um property uh alamo uh thumbprint as they call it so uh you know <laughs> and what what's amazing to me the first story that i read about this uh is that what they really want vince's bar for they say that you know it's for a theater it will come the theater itself that would you know be housed in the museum would come maybe you know a few feet into vince's property but otherwise it'll be used to sort of like house electrical work and there'll be a parking lot back there <laughs> So, oh no! Like, it's you know even if you are the type of person who's like, look, you know, I'm a, I'm a diehard Texan. I love the Alamo. I really want to see this project come to completion. Uh, I mean, there are two things about that. It's like, a, why do you sort of start planning without having acquired the property that you need for those plans? I mean, that seems crazy to me. Because um, I know they can and, get away with it. Yeah, and and you know, it it does feel like. the allies that Vince has had in in Texas, um, you know, it's really like, there's a very strong libertarian core. Uh, He's, he's also, he's a, he's a Mexican American. He's, he's, his family, he has, he comes from a long line of Mexican American tavern owners. Um, You know, he's very proud of the property that he has. It's in this space. If you've been to San Antonio, that's like, um, like a hundred paces from the Alamo itself. Um, maybe 20 from the river walk. It's just like a daydream property for him. And, and it wasn't always that way. I mean, when he and his wife found it, it, it was, you know, trash to most people. Um, he, he leased it with an option to buy, uh, you know, spent all kinds of, of time and money and resources, uh, with his family restoring the place and, and turning it, it into something, you know, that, that he could be proud of. And, um, that he felt like was really part of the of the fabric of the city. So, you know, to me, really, that's that's the core of this case is that, like, it, it's scary and it should be scary to people that you can spend um, a lifetime, really. I mean, it is the, the lifetime of, of his children building something up, making it successful, you know, dumping <laughs> hours of your life into it. And the government can say, you know, we're going to take it and this is what we think it's worth. What what you think it's worth is irrelevant to us. Like we're going to take it and this is what we think it's worth. Um, so it's a, you know, it's a sad story. And, you know, one of the things that I've learned in working on the story or that I did learn working on the story is that there seems to be, and maybe it's generational, but there seems to be less affection or less concern for, for private property and the, the rights of private property owners than there's maybe ever been. I think eminent domain happens so often um, that people just see it as a fact of life now. Uh, and 
I, I do think too, you know, in asking people, just strangers in San Antonio, um, strangers, you know, here where I am in Virginia, kind of what they thought about that, that kind of taking the people who are most concerned about it are people who feel like they're at threat of it. So, you know, people who live in what they call like blighted properties, which, you know, (laughs) I take issue with that too, because who's to say one man's trash is another man's treasure. You know, if it's somebody's home or somebody's business, um, and the city doesn't like it, well, I mean, that's, that sucks. Sucks to suck. Um, has Greg Abbott weighed in on this yet? I I have not seen, and I think, you know, my view of it is that Greg, I haven't seen that he's weighed in. My view of it is that Greg Abbott is sort of trying to hide from it. Um, I think, you know, Texas has this reputation for being, uh, you know, this very sort of strong uh, <laughs> personal individual liberty state. Um, that, that, you know, values individual rights. And, you know, meanwhile, that's not the case here. And, and if you dig a little bit deeper and start looking at what's happening with economic development in Austin, and I think that, um, you know, it's kind of spreading to San Antonio, they're about an hour drive time from, from one another. Um, you'll see that there's more of this sort of thing happening. And it, it, to me seems like the state itself, with the exception of, um, Don Buckingham, who is the, uh, let me make sure that I get her title exactly right. I think her title is Texas Land Commissioner. Um, she She's really been the person who's been uh, <laughs> sort of adamantly speaking on behalf of the city and adamantly speaking on behalf of the project and quite quite explicitly speaking against Vance as a private property owner, which is... You know, another thing that's been crazy about this case is that it seems to have become so personal. Like, the the media has called Vince a traitor. That, oh, you know, folks have said that he's standing in the way of success, that he doesn't want to see the city succeed. I, I mean, it's been, like, it, kind of a blitz. Um, just the nature, nature of the coverage and the nature of the way that the government has, has talked about this. I mean, an example of this is that, is that the... Uh, the Texas Land Commissioner Don Buckingham, um, Fox News actually did a digital report uh, about this case, and you know it, it, they quoted Don Buckingham, and and the quote that she decided to give them included some facts about um, property taxes that Vince Vince tried to sort of like you know negotiate that the tax value of the property down so that the property taxes would be lo- would be lower. Um, and so, you know, that to her was like, well, what is it worth? Like, is it worth what he says it's worth for tax value? Or is it worth, you know, what he says it's worth with, you know, sort of the uh, uh, financial valuation of the of the business, of the building itself? And then, you know, for Vince, who sees this as, you know, sees the development itself as, a, as an economic, economic opportunity for businesses that are located downtown, he, he wanted to value sort of like loss of revenue, future, future losses. Yeah. Um, you know, so her point is like, well, if you want to pay lower taxes, then you shouldn't get to price your business at like what you think your business is worth, which to me is like any business owner, any homeowner, any, you know, anybody who has to pay property taxes, that's like a no brainer that you're going to negotiate down. Nobody is trying to pay the government more money for their property. Um, 
So, you know, I think there's just been a lot of disingenuousness and, you know, uh, a lot of, a lot of effort toward vilifying Vance for doing what I think that almost any private property owner would want to do. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously you, you covered it and, uh, Reason Magazine's covered it, um, I didn't know about the Fox Digital. I, I didn't know that. But, you know, outside of that, I mean, if if uh, you hadn't brought it up um, a couple months ago, I, I never would have heard of this case at all. Um, you know, and like eminent domain, like I and you are right that it's just in in the minds of Americans. It's just become normal. Yeah. Um, I mean, the government just eminent domained a, a few families out of their homes uh, last year, a mile up the road from me. They wanted to put another on ramp to the expressway up and. They just kicked him out, you know. <laughs> they, yeah. They kicked him right out, and and people just view it as normal. But it's like, especially if you're like a libertarian like me, or or a conservative, or anybody on the right who, or or left, like anybody who who claims to value individual liberty and property rights, opposing eminent domain is it's a no brainer. I mean, it's like you know, obviously yeah. I'm an anarchist. I think most things governments do are evil, but it's like eminent domain is 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 cartoonishly villainous. Yeah. I mean, it is like, well, and especially like, you know, this Kilo versus city of new London Supreme court ruling, um, you know, what was it? What was that issue in that case? Was this, this neighborhood, um, you know, that the city wanted to take to, de- to develop with Pfizer, this city to, I mean, it's almost comical. It sounds like it's made up too, but yeah. this facility, uh, that Pfizer was going to use to produce Viagra, um, so, uh, you know, they, they did the deal. They, they won the case. Um, the houses were bulldozed. The facility was, was built. Um, Pfizer, you know, sort of operated the facility until the tax benefits and other benefits that they'd been offered by the state and by the, by the city uh, expired. And, um, you know, to my knowledge, it's, it's, it's empty now and has for years. And, you know, I think that's the issue it's a broader issue with sort of like public private economic development. And, you know, that is that we're not really looking hard at these projects and the tax revenue that they're, that they're, you know, bringing to the city, which is, you know, that's the sort of public benefit argument is that these generate tax revenue for the, for the city and for the state. Um, we haven't really, I think looked hard at, uh, you know, whether that's worth what, what a city is giving up and certainly what private citizens are giving up. Um, And that's of concern to me. I mean, you know, I, as far as the Alamo goes, you know, (laughs) I love the story. Every time that I've been to San Antonio, I visited the Alamo. I feel like it, it constantly is becoming sort of richer and, and, and coming more alive to me. And I think, um, you know, that story itself is something that, that the folks at the, the Alamo Trust, the general land office, uh, the city and the state should, should come back to, um, because if those stories lose their meaning, if they lose their principle, and we decide that those principles aren't important anymore, then the stories themselves aren't important anymore. And, you know, for me personally, that's sort of, sort of where I've, I've landed on this is that like, I, I, I always want cities to do well, I want cities to thrive, I want their citizens to do well, I want, I want cities to have the tax revenue that they need to, to, you know, to, to manage the city well. Um, But, you know, to me, that can never come at the cost of uh, the rights of a private citizen. And I think, you know, where I come from in Appalachia, there is no right that's more sacred than land rights. 
And, you know, I, I hope that, um, I, you know, I, I suspect that the reason that this case hasn't gotten more coverage from mainstream outlets is uh, because both Democrats and conservatives are on board with the taking. And, um, you know, I think it doesn't, it doesn't give anybody a cozy, convenient hero story where, you know, somebody's stepping in and saying like, no, this is, this is not what we want to do. Yeah. Um, I, I really think that, that it's, it's much messier than that. And I think, you know, the allies that he's had have been vocal and, and have really stood by him and I think have, have been, you know, of value to him in, in navigating all this. But I, I would like to see, you know, I'd like to see more coverage of this issue in the national news period, because, you know, we can talk all the time about like culture war and, um, you know, constitutional rights writ large and this, that, and the other. But ultimately, like if we can't come together to, to protect individual liberties uh, and civil rights, then then that's all entertainment. Um, yeah, 100 yeah. percent. And yeah, I mean, as long as I mean, in my mind, if as long as eminent domain exists and as long as there are restrictions on gun ownership, um, the Constitution is void, you know. I mean, there's yeah. no—you don't really have rights um, if if the government can take your property and stop you from defending your property. No, I mean, those are I, those are so basic to human liberty that um, the fact that those two issues persist, at least to me— um, just tells me that the Constitution is an absolute failure and basically null and void at this point. Yeah, and I think you know, with the economic development, sort of justifying imminent, justifying eminent domain takings for the purpose of economic development, like the question then becomes like who whose rights, you know? And to the extent that we're valuing sort of corporate rights or business rights over the rights of individuals, like we have an issue, I think. Um, and I, you know, I don't know what the, I don't know what the solution is to that other than sort of people responding to it. You know, it's a, it, it's a kind of deal where the, the San Antonio city council, there were, you know, there were two, two folks who voted against, uh, authorizing imminent, imminent domain against Vince's bar. Um, and the bar is called Moses Roses, by the way. I don't know if I mentioned that, but, um, you know, lots of the folks, lots of the folks who, uh, who were, who sit on that city council who voted in favor of, of the eminent domain taking, they've said in subsequent interviews, like, I really, you know, I take, I take, uh, land rights really seriously, but, and it's like, okay, but you don't no. like you don't, you know? And, and the reality is, is if they felt that their vote on this issue was going to affect their position on that city council at all come time for elections, then they wouldn't have voted that way. Yeah. But, you know, the, the, the sort of like bargain with themselves that they're making is that this is not going to move voters. P you know, people are not paying close enough attention to it um, and, and they don't feel personally threatened by it enough to be moved by the issue. Um, and that, you know, that's really a problem. And to me, that that feels like a, hey, we need to let people know problem. Um, oh, yeah. Because I don't think, you know. There, there are lots of people who, you know, get fixated on the numbers. Well, he wants X, Y, Z amount for this bar. It doesn't matter. It's his land. Like yeah. <laughs> if, if this were a private sale, you know, you could, you could come to me and ask me to sell you my grandmother's ring, which I don't want to sell. 
and you know maybe it's valued at 200 bucks and i i say all right you can have it for a million dollars like that that's okay because if i don't want to sell then that's you know that's a strategy that i can take um but that's you know that's not really been allowed what's what's happened here is that he's been negotiating with a gun to his head um <laughs> i think he's he's become really disillusioned and it's been disappointing for him as somebody who really loves a city and state, uh, to be at the center of this whole thing. Um, but I do think that, you know, I do think that people in Texas writ large, and I think people in, in San Antonio really need to know what's going on here. Absolutely. And I, uh, and I'll tweet out the the story right under this, uh, uh, right under this uh, podcast as soon as it's out too. If, if anybody missed it, definitely check it out. It's definitely worth a read. Um, and you're right about, you know, we need to talk about COVID now. And um, it's yeah. the same, same yes. attitude, the, the apathy of voters um, regarding the worst thing the government's done in a long, long time is remarkable. And um, I, I would get to that in just a second, but we got to start with the, the pivot that the COVID tyrants are attempting right now before our very eyes. And I, I yeah. obviously we knew this was going to happen. I just figured they would have waited a little longer, you know, yeah. to, to blatantly lie to our faces. You know, like it's it's only 2023. It's it's not 2035, you know. Um, yeah. But the tyrants are already trying to rewrite history. Fauci was on TV over the weekend claiming that he had nothing to do with lockdowns. Randy Weingarten, uh, the union boss, American Federation of Teachers, claimed that her union tried to open schools right away. <laughs> which yeah. Is, completely preposterous and then donald trump is uh is i mean i mean he's he's even worse i mean he's literally just pretending that in 2020 he was ron DeSantis and ron DeSantis was trump <laughs> you know like he's just like yeah. taking the two of their positions completely re reversing them and yeah. just insulting the intelligence of his supporters i mean it's just blatant gaslighting it's absolute shamelessness i mean and and I mean, the fact that it, it's happening so quick. I mean, there's still Democrats all across the country wearing masks in their cars. Okay, I mean, yeah. there's still there's still people that are drinking the Kool Aid, and these people are already trying to Jedi mind trick us. Yeah, I mean, and I think I think that's a result of the of the information age that we live in. That the news cycle moves so quickly, and that people, you know, people will be hot about one thing in the morning, and by the afternoon, they're hot about something else. And, you know, I think that these people are relying on uh, kind of mass uh, amnesia. And I think to some extent it works because, look, not everybody was equally impacted by COVID and, and by, by lockdown measures. I mean, I think if you're a person who, you know, maybe you don't have kids or, or your, your kids are adults or even if your kids are, you know, sort of in their later years in high school, that... COVID lockdowns did not affect you the way that they did parents of children who are, you know, in kindergarten, first, second grade, who have, have suffered this massive loss of learning. I'm not saying that those people, you know, that those children suffered a, a greater loss of learning than kids who are a bit older, but, you know, we know that those early childhood, early childhood education um, really impacts who we will become. Um, I think the same, the same is true for, for small business owners or people who worked in the, you know, restaurant or bar industry. I mean, I think back to um, Bashir in Kentucky, he told people, uh, he told restaurant and tavern owners and workers on, I think it was a Sunday that he didn't want to have to shut them down, that he wouldn't shut them down, but that he wanted them to take mitigation measures seriously. 
And by noon the next day, he was announcing closures at 5 p.m. So these people had less than five hours to pivot. Um, you know, those people, and I, I actually have spoken to the president of the K uh, Kentucky Restaurant Association, who said that she feels like there's like PTS in the restaurant industry after, you know, sort of COVID and then inflation and supply chain issues and, you know, just on and on and on forever. Um, but, you know, I, I think the issue is that those people will remember, <clears throat> but in terms of, of expert quote, experts, quote unquote, and politicians, um, that's not who they're talking to. You know, they're talking to the people who really weren't hurt as badly by it, who didn't suffer sort of, you know, palpable real uh, consequences from it. And they're counting on the fact that those people won't go back and look at what they said, that, you know, the information churn will just like go and go and go and go and will become more and more and more saturated. So, you know, maybe not everybody will believe they're sort of about face here, but some people will, you know? Um, and, and I think, you know, that's sort of a, it's a tragedy, but it's a reality that people can just bold face lie yeah. about what they said and did and that they will still have advocates, advocates saying, yes, like that is true. That is what happened. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just, it's nuts. It's the nuts. American, the American people are just so darn docile. You yeah. know, it, it is, it's, it's fast. <laughs> you know, it's just the, the, the past few years really painted a picture that I really don't like about yeah. my countrymen. Yeah. You know? And I think people, people are so tired after everything that they have been through. And, you know, what we went through during that time wasn't just, you know, mitigation measures, quote unquote, it wasn't just lockdowns. It was, it was, um, you know, it was fear. It was loss. It was being told to trust the experts and, you know, having experts who were saying, well, we didn't know what was going on, <laughs> which is like, okay. So yeah. like, why would I trust you? Right. But well, it's um, even worse. It's even worse than that because like a lot of these governors, a lot of these, these people in charge, I mean, they were doing it recreationally. Like oh, they were, yeah. they were just forcing people to do stuff at gunpoint because they get off on it. Yeah. I mean, I, I watched interviews. I remember, um, I, w I watched some interviews with mayors who, you know, were lauded as like hero lockdown heroes, um, you know, who effectively we now know devastated their cities economically. Um, yeah. but you know, I watched interviews at the time where, where those mayors were talking about like using lockdown to accelerate other policies. And a lot of, a lot of those policies had to do with the sort of quote unquote racial reckoning that we were going through, um, you know, during lockdowns, which, you know, that, that was the first sort of, um, tip off that something wasn't exactly right. And, and, you know, that being that like, if you're protesting, um, you know, uh, discrimination or hostility toward minorities, then COVID won't infect you somehow. You're somehow like psychologically immunized against the effects of a purportedly devastating, <laughs> highly yeah. contagious disease. I, that was the first sort of loss of, of trust. And, you know, since then we've just had like, it's been, you know, effectively an information download, you know, to include, uh, to include leaks about, you know, the, the, the source of, of COVID, where it came from, uh, from the administrative state. Like, it, it's just been a constant churn of information that, that we were told, you know, was not right. And then we find that it was, like, it, it really just, like, 
what worries me the most about it is that um, it, it feels like these people are like the boy that cried lockdown. And, you know, it, it, it feels like were we ever to be in a real crisis, we've learned nothing. You know, we've, we've, we've not used this opportunity to sort of go back a Monday morning quarterback, you know, develop sort of an after action report, what went wrong, what went right, how would we do this better? Instead, it's just been like, well, we didn't do or say that, which, you know, is, is juvenile. <laughs> it's like, yeah. you are supposed to be a, you know, responsible public servant. You are not a celebrity. This is not about you. Um, I just, and that's. I, I really think that the repercussions of failing to hold these people accountable will be catastrophic. I mean, we're talking about the the largest expansion of government power since the New Deal. Yeah. I mean, you can argue that the Patriot Act was more damaging than the lockdowns, but the lockdowns were so, they were felt by everyone. You know what I mean? Yeah. They were so aggressive and brutal. You know, from, from Gretchen Whitmer saying you're not allowed to grow seeds to grow food. Right. Yeah. yeah it's that like, to me was probably the scariest thing the, the, because it was like, what? Forced, <laughs> forced vaccinations. I mean, just forcing yeah. people to get, take this experimental vaccine, making literal babies, infants wear masks. You know yeah. what I mean? Like the right, whether it's conservatives, libertarians, any normal person, any normal human being who wants to be free should have been laser focused these last few years on COVID accountability, holding these monsters, these tyrants accountable but everybody just moves on to the next thing you know right now it's all trans yeah. people and drag queens and i mean not that that stuff's not important like it's of course important to protect children from the predations of the left but like the government you know to run the risk of sounding too hyperbolic here the government tried to end america in 2020 <laughs> they tried to, they tried to end it end the american experiment they try to basically get rid of individual liberty once and for all and yeah. all of these governors were reelected last year in the midterms well, Gretchen I, Whitmer won by 11 points. Mike DeWine in a, a red state. Yeah. He locked me down in my house for a month at gunpoint, and he won by 25 points. These people yeah. that lock people down at gunpoint are more popular now <laughs> than before they did that. I mean, it's like, I don't know what that says about us as the American, not me, you and I, obviously, but the American people. I, I don't know. It's just like. Is there even an appetite to hold these people accountable? I mean, like Rand Paul's out there saying he's going to prosecute Fauci. God bless him. I hope he I hope Fauci rots in prison. But like, is there even an appetite among the American people to hold these monsters accountable anymore? I think what is encouraging is to see. I think it's 30 states now have, uh, you know, through their legislatures, passed limitations on emergency powers, which had to be done. I mean, I, I think that. I think that what was happening in sort of the, you know, quote unquote public health community was that there was this reckoning that, oh, hey, we can use these to do a lot of other things. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that that's encouraging to see. It's encouraging to see at least some legislatures reflecting uh, and saying, you know what, like this can't just be a sort of carte blanche invitation to interfere in people's lives. Um I, I think, you know, one of the things that I worry about, we know that overdose rates skyrocketed during oh, COVID. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, yep. I had several friends overdose and, you know, in the, in, in circumstances in which they'd been clean for years, um, got in a bad way during lockdowns, uh, you know, relapsed and, and didn't make it. 
Um, yeah. We now have the Surgeon General saying that loneliness is an epidemic. Well, no shit. Like, yeah. we we broke something important about the way that we function socially uh, in American society. And I think, you know, the other thing that we've seen, and we can't really, like, this is not something that can be quantitatively valued. And, and that is that, you know, if you're going out to, uh, to lunch with your friends or you're going out to a coffee shop, you're going out to, uh, to a bar or, you know, just sort of any general gathering place, you will come into contact with people with whom you ardently disagree about politics, religion, uh, baseball, all kinds of things, right? And, and yet you like each, you find that you like each other. You find that you can have meaningful conversation, that you care about each other. Um, that, that in this face to face interaction, even though you don't agree, uh, entirely that you recognize humanity in each other. And I think, you know, we want to have this conversation now about how people have become just hyper, hyper polarized. And I think that that's true, but when we are living our lives on the internet and we have a, uh, you know, mirror in which the information that we consume is just a reflection of ourselves and our own thoughts and our own ideas. Um, there's never any A learning. There's never any B sort of like self challenging self analysis. Uh, and there's never any C opportunity to see like, you know what? I don't, I don't agree with this person, but I really like, there's so many things that I love and like about what I'm, what I'm seeing here and what I'm hearing here. Um, and I don't think that we can know, I don't think that we can know, you know, what the impact of that. I think that there are many, many uh, things that we will learn in coming years that are, are a result of this sort of like zero COVID lockdown absolutism um, that we, we will not like and that we will be troubled by and that we will not be able to find appropriate solutions for because, as you said, we haven't done any real self-reflection haven't demanded transparency and haven't demanded accountability and people don't realize how much they've been affected you know no it's like they just don't i mean and 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 like you a friend of my wife's actually um who was clean for a long long time a decade i think um had a bunch of kids and stuff and she fell off the wagon od'd um during covid and maybe you don't know anybody but hey have you heard of the foo fighters biggest band in the world Biggest band in the world for the last 25 years? Well, their drummer OD'd. He'd been clean for 20 years, Taylor Hawkins. Yeah. And then gets locked down by the governor, and he takes away his support system, which is touring with his best friends in the band. And he has a, a job. He goes to work every day and couldn't do that, couldn't tour. Well, you know, heroin took him out. So, yeah. I mean, like, you know, you know, I'm, I'm actually working uh, on, a, on a piece about, about this topic right now. But, um, you know, maybe none of the bars you you go to or the restaurants you go to closed. I mean, I don't know how. I mean, it's pretty it, it was pretty widespread across the country, but like I can never be a uh uh full-time touring musician ever again because 50% of rock and roll clubs over actually over 50% in the yeah. country are gone forever. So it's like you couldn't even book a tour cuz there's not enough places to play. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's like I, the piece I'm working on and you know, maybe None of these businesses that you frequent close down. But let's say if you're a if you're a fisherman, like I am, and, and you grew up around fishing boats and stuff like that, grew up near the water, um, you probably heard of two companies that have been making outboard motors for boats for about 115 years, uh, Evinrude and Johnson. Um, 
I'm sure you're familiar with those two names. <laughs> uh, they're gone, gone forever. Yep. Yeah, Evan Rude was founded in 1907, been making outboard boat motors ever since. Survived two world wars and the Great Depression, but couldn't survive the government. You know? Yeah, but the most, I, the, I, you know, you'll never buy, you never see a, a new Evan Rude motor ever again. You know, it's like, yeah, and there's a million examples like this. Like people just yeah. don't know how connected they are to the devastation caused by their government. Yeah, and when we talk about, you know, we talk about culture. I, I. I mean, you know, I lived in D.C. for a very long time and actually right ahead of uh, COVID closures, not related to, but just coincidentally, um, I moved home. Um, and that I, you know, fantastic timing. It, by the way. <laughs> I am blessed and I am, you know, thankful to God for that every day. Um, but, you know, I, I went back to D.C. for work maybe a year later. Um, it was when people were sort of starting to come out of their, like, you know, hiding places um, and back into the world. Uh, but, you know, they, all the places that, that made D.C. okay for me in the sense that, like, I found real people who, you know, really cared about people, um, all those places closed down. And I, I do think we have to think hard about um, – the real economy in our communities and what we want that economy to look like. Because, you know, to me, corporate means homogenous, but, you know, these small, small mom and pop shops, um, you know, builders of things, makers of things, uh, when those, when those things are gone, they really can't be replaced. You know, I, I can't get the same level of expertise and care and tenderness at, the local Home Depot as I get at the Norton hardware store. Like Absolutely. It, it's not the same. So, you know, I think we have to consider what we lost too. Um, you know, when we lost those, those private enterprises and those small businesses, um, because it's a, it's a wealth of knowledge, but it's also a representation of what success can look like in a small community. Um, and that, you know, that loss to me has been, been heartbreaking. Um, I, I want everybody to thrive. <laughs> I want everybody yeah. to survive. I know that that's not realistic, but I mean, it, it, there is a close analogy with what's happening with Vince in the sense that like you can work your whole life, make something successful and be told, no, you can't have this anymore. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, you know, I don't think that's who we want to be. Yeah. Welcome to uh, anarchism. <laughs> <laughs> We've been waiting for you. <laughs> you mentioned something that, uh, and uh, I'll, I'll just be candid with the audience. I am um, I'm missing a lot of topics <laughs> on the podcast <laughs> because I'm not getting much sleep and my memory is shot. And so I, I basically just whittle each podcast down to just a, a, a small list of topics that I can actually, you know, acquaint myself with um, instead of just like blunderbuss blunderbuss style covering everything like I used to. But uh, hopefully it'll get better, guys. It'll get better. But um, you mentioned something that I hadn't even been paying much attention to. Um, a lot of these media companies, digital media companies, are dropping like flies right now. Um, yeah. Yesterday, Vice uh, filed for bankruptcy. I believe BuzzFeed did too. Um, or am I am I making that up? I think I saw, I think I saw something about BuzzFeed yeah. going down too. But I think BuzzFeed laid off its entire workforce, and um, I think their plan is to is to shutter. They're going to shut down. So sad, so sad for them. But um, <laughs> Vice uh, Vice was valued at at almost six billion. It was like five point seven billion dollars uh, not too long ago, like five six years yeah. ago, and now they can't keep the lights on. So 
Um, from my perspective, I'm like, good. <laughs> you know, like, these people are terrible. They're dishonest. They're liars. These are people that have been pushing the worst things in the world, you know, going back to the Iraq war, going, you know, it's like they just push a lot of these, these journalistic outlets push the most evil things on the planet. Um, so good riddance, but it's like, I, I do feel like there is a, it's going to be interesting, you know, like we, we thought I, even going back a few years ago, we thought that these digital outlets would kind of be around forever. Like we thought they would just, keep making money they'd keep riding high and and uh it turns out that is not the case at all yeah yeah and i think um i think there are a lot of reasons for that and you know media it goes through these kinds of undulations um and (laughs) kind of purges itself of of some outlets i you know for me i i grew up loving news and you know even when i ardently disagree with people I, I love to read their work. And I think, you know, what, what happened at, at Vice and I think at BuzzFeed to some extent as well, although, I mean, realistically, it's a, it's a confluence of factors. Like I said, I think, you know, we're looking toward, we're looking at a decline of social media. We're looking, you know, which BuzzFeed specifically, you know, really depended on um, social media for circulation and, and a whole litany of other, you know, uh, efforts um, we're looking at a uh, sort of more varied media landscape. I think people are, are able to get more sort of specialization and less sort of like negative fear mongering <laughs> with podcasts. I mean, you can go, you, you think about like Joe Rogan and the rise of Joe Rogan's podcast or, you know, any number of other podcasts that have just seen, you know, huge success what what you get there that that I think that a lot of digital media has been lacking is a genuine curiosity in you know goings on whether it's right. just news itself whether you know in Joe Rogan's case it's comedy or MMA um, you know whether it's hunting and fishing whether you know I listen to tons of hiking podcasts and sort of outdoor news podcasts um, you can get something that's interesting that's positive that's, you know, genuinely curious and open to conversation. And I think that that's something that, you know, certainly there have been reporters who've done that. There have been outlets that have done that. But by and large, I think there's been a lot of darkness and negativity in digital media. And I think people are exhausted. I mean, we talked about uh, COVID closures. And, you know, I, I know tons of people who were just glued to the television, glued to their computers and phones, um, you know, during those closures. And I think people are tired. I think they're genuinely, genuinely tired of of getting, you know, news that's bad news. And I think, you know, another fact another factor is that this it's not like there are very few cases in which you're going to a media outlet and you're, you know, reading original content and it's something that's extremely special that you could not have heard or accessed anywhere else. I mean, it, we basically have a media landscape in which people are all talking about the same topics all the time in the same way. <laughs> Nobody yeah. is special. And, you know, if, if you are sort of special in the sense that, like, you have a different voice or you're interested in different things, then there's a kind of, like, uh, kowtowing that's required, um, I think, to be picked up by, by legacy media. And then, you know, meanwhile, we're seeing the rise of Substack, which 
you know, we've talked about this before. I don't have the confidence in Substack that lots of people have. I, I think, you know, I mean, I know people who ride on Substack who are who are very successful and they're taking on advertisers and, and it requires subscriptions. I mean, it is this media is like it is an avenue for revenue. It's not a like public service. So, you know, to the extent that that's true, that that I think can be defining. But I also think that like lots of these people who are breakout superstar journalists who wanted to have their own voice um, are able to do that now. And they have, you know, a platform in which they can monetize that. Um, in some cases, Matt Taibbi to like crazy financial success. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I do think that what we're seeing is a kind of like <laughs> unwinding of what people thought would be an eternally upward trajectory. And, you know, again, to be fair, like media is not sort of the only sector that's going through layoffs. People, you know, looking toward our, our economic circumstances, our economic reality now, and sort of, um, if, if you, if you don't believe we're in a recession, then recession, if you do believe that we're in a recession, then a deepening of that, like that is a reality too. And that, you know, is a, is an independent reality, uh, to sort of any of the things that I've just, just mentioned. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I do think that, like, we need to come to terms with the fact that people are much more complex than a lot of media have given them credit for, that people do thrive on variety, that they don't want to be told to be afraid all the time, um, and that, you know, they want to participate in, in a human experience that's much more complex than red team, blue team. Yeah, and I think another thing that killed Vice and, and some of these you know, hard left sites is that like the, the main, the corporate press, I mean, just your New York times, Washington post. I mean, they're, they're just vice now. <laughs> you know what I mean? So well, it's like yeah. vice used to be edgy. It was like this, like far left, like where to yeah. go to get like super far left takes. It's like, that's just, well, the, that's CNN and the New York times. I mean, there's nothing to differentiate vice from anything else because like, 90% of, of the, the media has, is exactly like that now. I mean, there's no, like the right-wing media and then it's just all of that. So it's like, why would people even go to Vice when they can just go to one of these more easily accessible mainstream media outlets that's giving them the exact yeah. same content but in a more well, professional manner? Yeah, and that's a, that's a I think, absolutely fantastic point. It's actually something like I know um, – I was listening to the Fifth Element podcast and, and you know, before all of this happened at, at Vice over the last few days, um, you know, Michael was let go, Michael Moynihan was let go from Vice. Um, and, you know, he was talking about and he 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 sort of knew Vice and followed Vice and had been a part of Vice for an incredibly long time. Um, and he, you know, was talking about its its early days. And I remember going, I remember loving it. And the reason that I loved it is that you know, at the time, at that time, there was sort of more like what's going on in other countries. Like, what are the like civil rights abuses that are happening internationally? What are we being told by these countries that's absolutely not true? I mean, I, I remember one story in, in, in particular that was about, um, you know, Cuba uh, opening its doors to American tourists again. And, you know, this vice reporter, like, went to Cuba and basically, like, snuck out of this, <laughs> like, very narrow 
um, sort of set of places that Americans were allowed to go and was like, yeah, it's fucking awful. It's brutal. Um, like those, those pieces to me were, were important pieces and I love them. I love reading them. The style was incredible. I, I do think that like, even though they tended to be far left, I mean, they had some, some, uh, pieces that were certainly from right wing voices. It just was that they, they were doing something that nobody, nobody had been doing at all. I think it's a symptom too, of just like the alignment, the current alignment of, of politics in America right now. Like when they started, left wingers had interesting things to say <laughs> you know what yeah. i mean like there was anti-war leftists right you know what i mean like the, yes. the occupy wall Adamantly. street people like get Adamantly. money out of politics and you yeah. know like whatever but it's like they've just the left has the brain drain on the left has been awful i mean these people are just like i mean they're just yeah. carrying water for joe joseph biden <laughs> you know what i mean it's like really like you used to be this like anti-war activist now you're like i'm just pissed that the republicans don't want to send more money to ukraine it's like what like what are we doing you know what i mean like you guys used to protest bush and all this yeah and now you're just these like military industrial complex shills yeah it's like it's a complete embarrassment what they've become well and i think vice like to your point, other there were other people at the time who started. They they saw what Vice was doing. They thought it was working. Um, you know, some other outlets sort of started trying to ad- adopt that style. Um, and then at some point, like Vice seems to have looked at itself and said, "We want to be just like everybody else." Yeah. Um, and being just like everybody else meant like. <laughs> woke reporting yeah (laughs) basically i mean just like endless stories about and you know i I, again speaking of like fatigue i think i think americans are just so tired of be being beaten over the head with that and it's like different variations of the same story and like did you brush your teeth this morning that's racist like yeah yeah how many times like you can't just call people racist over and over expect them to keep reading your stuff (laughs) you know what i mean like it's crazy yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, and again, that goes to the point of like people think them thinking that they had something that's, that's really special. I, you know, the, the, it can be a, what works can be a bit of a mystery. And I think readers, you know, of course every outlet has diehard readers, but I think readers can be a little bit fickle. Um, but I think that it's a mistake to just say like, all right, well, whatever everybody else is doing, we're just going to do that. Um, because they can get it other places. Like you said, like you can get a better, you know, more sophisticated, better reported piece somewhere else. So why would you want to listen to like a 22 year old's thoughts on why you're racist? <laughs> right. Like it's not, right. you know, you're, I'm good on that. <laughs> yeah. Like, um, but I, you know, I also think that there are business decisions that were made. I do think that there was this like to the moon attitude about digital media that, you know, it was just limitless, that there would be limitless, a limitless audience and eternal growth. And, you know, that's not really the reality in any sector. And, you know, I think when reality sort of barges in, um, you know, things, things go south. Um, and one, one more thing before I let you go. Um, it will be interesting to see how the, uh, how the press operates in the wake of the Fox News Dominion settlement. Yeah. Um, 
because that and Jim Garrett, my friend Jim Garrity from National Review has written about this. Everybody go check it out. Um, but if you can sue journalists for lying, <laughs> yeah. you know, if you can if you can sue journalists for lying, there's only going to be a handful of them left. I mean, because it is you know if if this sets the precedent that you can go after these 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 people for lying about you, I I don't know. I mean, I, I you know not not a lot of um, of these outlets can afford uh, an $800 million bill paying some company off, you know. Um, and they deserve to lose. I mean, they deserve they deserve to pay that money. I mean, Fox News hosts lied about the 2020 election, and they got sued into oblivion, you know. But, man, if, if these lawsuits are coming fast and furious, like, I, you know, a lot of these digital outlets are probably going to have to shut down if they catch one of these lawsuits because there's a lot of lies out there. I mean, there's a lot of, yeah. um, you know, most... Most journalists, corporate journalists, they, all they do is lie for a living. So, I mean, there's a lot of libelous activity out there. Um, so I don't know. I, and so maybe it won't. Maybe it won't start a domino effect. But if it does, I mean, you could see a lot of these, a lot of these people dropping like flies here in the next couple of years. I think. Well, and I think like you know the standard, the the legal standard for uh, for libel or def- defamation from a news outlet is actual malice. But the issue is, is that <laughs> the issue is that is that like media outlets have gotten away, which you know, and I say this a little bit tongue in cheek because media has always been sensational. It's always oh, course, been sensational. But I think that you know, as as sort of outlets have sort of leaned further and harder and more explicitly into you know, sort of the left and the political left and political right, it's gotten a little bit easier to prove actual malice. <laughs> Right. <laughs> so, like, you know, if you if you're writing a story uh, and it's sort of just a fact based assessment um, to the extent that that's possible of, you know, what's what's going on, what's gone on. Um, actual malice is pretty hard to prove. I mean, you know, it's pretty clear when people are just moving fast and loose and and, you know, make a make a factual error and issue a correction and everybody moves on. Um but, you know, as people have gotten more uh, hesitant to issue corrections, as they've gotten more sort of, um, you know, a- as media has become, you know, political entertainment uh, and, and sort of gone full steam ahead uh, with, with that posture, I think that actual malice standard is, is as like, I, like I said, I think it's, it's easier to prove um, because a lie is a lie. And then, you know, now I think for Fox, it's like, all right, well, not only are we going through this, you know, significant legal battle, we also have now had like all of these private text messages, uh, you know, between sort of talent and staff and, and this, that, and the other sort of exposed. It's a PR nightmare. Fox just wants it to end. And, and it's true that like, you know, all of these places go through, through these kind of like PR hiccups. But, uh, I think I think that you know even in corporate media, media there's there's due a sort of self assessment and maybe especially in corporate media and uh you know who do we who do we want to be it's in kind of an identity crisis um, and I think the numbers suggest that <laughs> very yeah. strongly yeah. Um, but I don't think that it has to be a bad thing I mean I think that uh, you know I think that there was a there was a there was a time over the last few years when people were like really ready to move forward, you know, full steam ahead with like 
okay, well, we are on the left. And, and you still see this in, in lots of, of sort of pockets of corporate America. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that businesses are now seeing that, like, that yields much shorter term benefits than they thought that it would yield. And that the long term is that it does come around and backfire. And so, you know, when you're talking about what advertisers and what advertisers want and mitigating risk, um, you know, to themselves and, and sort of trying to immunizing themselves, trying to immunize themselves against any bad press. If you are an ad platform and these, you know, these companies are ad platforms, then that's what you have to be thinking toward. I think. I, I don't think anything changes until everyone in this space is unemployed though, <laughs> because like we, a lot of these media outlets, um, I mean, they're, they're operating in this post capitalist mindset where like, they know they're lying. They know they're just shills for the left. They know they're just like DNC. You know, they just, they just read their scripted DNC talking points every day. And they know that that's not good for business. They know they're, you know, they'd make way more ad revenue if they were fair and honest. They'd appeal to a much larger audience. But they're so committed to the ideology. They're so committed to protecting Democrats that they'd rather lose money um, than tell the truth, <laughs> you know? So it's like... I don't know if there's any hope for these people that aren't even they're not, they don't even respond to the market. Like they're not even yeah. I mean they're they're operating against their own financial interests. So it's like, you know, when somebody is looking out for the bottom line, they're at least more reasonable, you know. They might still be terrible mm. human beings, but at least you can reason with somebody like that. But it's like they're just not. I mean like it's I don't know, they they just rather talk to their own little echo chamber if, if it means they can protect Democrats then try to get it right and and make more money and appeal to a, a broader audience so it's just like it's just one of these problems that like the founders of this country never saw coming you know what I mean like they never saw like Thomas Jefferson could never have predicted that every journalist in America would just be would just dedicate their lives to promoting war you know what I mean <laughs> it's like, like just selling a foreign war in the Middle East you know, that it was just like, <laughs> there's no way that, that the founders saw that one coming, you know? Like, they thought that journalists would always go after the powerful, not protect the powerful. Yeah. You know, and it's like, I don't know. So I think they all need to burn down. Like, <laughs> it's a, I, like they all I, need to go away. All these people need to go bankrupt. They all need to go away. And then just better people, more intelligent humans can take their place. People that actually give a shit. People that actually yeah. want to get it right. Because I just don't... There's a few, like you mentioned, Matt Taibbi, and there's, you know, there's a few out there, but it's like, man, I can count them on one hand at this point. I really can. But I think to the extent that, that, that people do that, and I mean, I agree that people are very protective <laughs> of the, of the, you know, anointed class, but I, but I also think that they really believe the things that they say that they believe. And I think that they think that they are doing journalism and, you know, I don't think maybe I don't some even of think them, that it's maybe some with, of them, not all of them. Some a lot I, of them know exactly who and what they are. Well, and the reason that I believe that is because I've seen how they operate in this kind of like borderline closed society. And they're, you know, everybody's it's kind of like everybody's hanging out without me. Like they they're all sort of friends and, you know, they believe a lot of the same things. Um, but, you know, I do think like from my perspective, the thing that's, that's the most important. And this again, gets back to, to sort of the eminent domain issue. Um, I think that local press is more important than it's ever been. I think that, you know, this sort of like, uh, 
exodus from local press toward national press and national coverage at all times. It has led to a lot of local corruption. And I know that this is not a popular view among the right where like local government are supposed to be the gladiators <laughs> of the universe. But it, it's led to a lot of wrongdoing at the local and state level that just goes absolutely unchecked. And what, you know, sort of local outlets do survive seem to be sort of like semi-beholden to, uh, to these, you know, local political figures who are like hometown heroes. Um, to me, that's really the biggest issue is that it was like the, the national news spectrum was thought to be absolutely limitless. And meanwhile, reporting on how people are living their lives in, you know, whatever small town Virginia is just absolutely ignored. And if people, you know, are treated badly by court system, they don't have access to appropriate legal representation, the police, you know, in, in local communities have resourcing issues. They can address drug and other criminal uh, problems in their communities. But, like, we've just decided to all focus all effort on sort of, like, what is Donald Trump doing today? Um, and it, it has, you know, next to nothing to do with sort of how people are living. And that, to me, is, you know, if there's a thing that we can that we can gather that I would like people to gather from this sort of like contraction in digital media and especially, especially digital media that's covering national news. It's, Hey, there maybe, maybe national, maybe local news itself needed to go through kind of a rebirth, but it's time. <laughs> it's yeah. time to sort of like get back to, you know, what's happening every day for, for people, uh, you know, in life, in, in the communities that they're living in. Um, and, and away from this sort of like obsession. And I, I read um, Dana Brown's book about his time at, at Vanity Fair. Uh, and he said something that I thought, and it's not, you know, I think that lots of people think this, I really hadn't thought about it in this way, but he was talking about the OJ Simpson trial and the media fascination and public fascination with OJ Simpson and how, you know, that really was transformative, that politics became entertainment and entertainment became politics and I think that's true, and I think that has to end. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's really the whole, bad for like society. the like the Nancy Grace stuff. Well, yes. they'll 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 yeah. talk about some like local crime story, like some some woman gets murdered somewhere, and they'll just talk about it for six months on TV. You're like, I mean, not that I don't feel bad for whoever died, but yeah, wow. Yeah. I mean, like, there's other and that you know that you know the sensation like when when everything's outraged, nothing is outraged. And, yeah. you know, that's where we are, is that people are tuning out because they are tired of outrage. The outrage economy like why did, <laughs> is why did, in decline. Why did Casey Anthony have to be a household name? Right. Like, why? Like, that, like what value did that bring to, yeah. to journalism or anything? Like, what? What? Yeah. Like, some lady killed her kid or something. Like, yeah, it's awful. But, like, why? I don't. Why did? Why do I know her name? Why? Yeah. It didn't right. happen in Toledo, Ohio. And even if it did, it's none of my business. <laughs> like, how about, like, something that actually affects the citizens? You know, it's, it's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Yeah, and what's crazy about that is that there can be, you know, there can be, like, pretty heinous criminal acts in people's own communities, and they don't know about that, but they, like, know about, you know, that van life couple killing. Yeah. And it's like, okay. <laughs> And not to say that that isn't a tragedy. I mean, that's a 
that is a that is a tragedy and i'm i'm sorry for the people involved but um at some point i think you know you got to make sure your own house is in order before you start looking uh looking at what's going on with other people oh, yeah i mean imagine living in flint michigan right can't drink the water or you'll get sick and the news is telling you about casey anthony every night exactly you know what i mean it's like what an insult <laughs> exactly what an absolute insult to people exactly and you know and it, and it also feeds into this mentality of, I mean, I, I hear people who have been in office for <laughs> decades at home talking about like the economic circumstances at home. And I'm like, why didn't you do something? <laughs> yeah. It's like, again, that sort of like mass amnesia that's like, you know, an effect of, of the national news cycle kind of trickles down to local media. But I, I really do think like, I think a return to a focus on the local and a focus on um, how people are living and, and, and people's rights and uh, uh, you know, just quality of life is, is absolutely essential and, and is meant to be the purpose of a press um, is to, you know, to help, to help facilitate that. I don't think the press is going to get any better anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll just end the podcast on a low note. But uh, <laughs> if you're if you're looking for uh, <laughs> for any improvement in the near future, I just don't think I don't think it's going to happen. Well, it's going to take look, a lot more than it's going to take a lot more than vice going down. We can <laughs> yeah. all be praying for them. <laughs> Absolutely, Farron. Thank you so much for doing this. It's always a pleasure. Uh, hope we can do it again soon. Um, where can everybody read your stuff? Follow you online. Keep in touch. All that good stuff. Yeah, I'm on uh, Substack at Long Road Home and on Twitter, just my name, little little tough to spell, F-A-R-A-H-N. Last name is Morgan, M-O-R-G-A-N. Well, right, this is pretty smart. They'll be able to figure it out. <laughs> I, I trust them. Everybody follow Morgan. She's or Farron Morgan, sorry. <laughs> She's great. That's all I got for today. I'm Brady Leonard. I'll be back on Monday. No gimmicks. <laughs>